2, The Power of More from Brockmeier and Zalo. Innovation Thinking Today's episode is about the role of the space industry for our future and women empowerment. Before we get our special guest into the conversation, I would like to introduce the co-host of the podcast, Mr. Dieter Brockmeier, the innovation expert at the Diplomatic World Institute. Hello, Dieter. How are you? Better than you, I would uh, I would suppose from uh, from hearing your voice. Um, so I'm taking over now. Uh, a brand new situation for me. So I hope I'm doing well. And it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, Shelley Brunswick. Uh, Shelley is uh, well. She wears many hats, as most of the amazing women we have uh, had here on the show already. So she is adding another. Uh, fr uh, another pebble stone or another uh, jewel to uh, to it. And um, yeah, she has a quite unusual career. She started out as an airman, then became officer in the, in the U.S. In the Air Force, which was then a very unusual, and I think it still is to some point. And yes, and now she has a major role in the space industry. So please, uh, Shelley, tell us a little bit about your background. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so honored to be joining you today. And as I always say, my journey has three chapters. And you've shared a little bit of those chapters, but I'll add a little bit. So that first chapter is when I enlisted in the U.S. Air Force right out of high school. And I did that for a number of reasons. One, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to travel internationally, and I didn't have money for college. So I'm sure many of your audience can relate to that when you're graduating high school. What do I want to do with my life? So the Air Force, the Air Force was a great opportunity. I got to get stationed in Turkey and Germany, but I also was able to go to school at night and earn my bachelor's and master's degrees, which allowed me to become an officer in the U.S. Air Force. I will also say during that enlisted time, the skill set that the Air Force taught me was to be a personnel or human relations uh, specialist. So I got to learn a skill set. So it was a wonderful 12 years of my career, that first uh, early career from 18 to 30, I learned about being an enlisted airman. When I became an officer, that's when the Air Force reclassified me as a space acquisition program manager. Now I will share with you, I had no idea what that was, and I really didn't want to do it. But when you're in the Air Force, you don't really get a lot of choice. And somebody called me and said, you know, Sergeant Brunswick, we really need you to go into space. And I saluted smartly and said, yes, sir. And today I'm so grateful for that because that started my 25-year career in the space industry. So again, it just highlights to your audience, sometimes you may not know what the future holds or totally understand a career opportunity, but sometimes you have to lean into it and embrace it. And so I was a space uh, program manager for several years uh, during the Air Force while I was an officer. I was stationed at the Space and Missile System Center. I did ground stations and uh, launch vehicles and satellites. I taught, I was a professor at Defense Acquisition University teaching about space acquisition. And my final assignment in the US Air Force, I worked on Capitol Hill, uh, securing funding and approval for the programs for the Air Force from Congress and the Senate. So it was an exciting career that I had both as an enlisted airman and an officer. And then when I went to retire, the opportunity to apply and become the chief operating officer at Space Foundation started. And that started my the journey I'm on now in the third chapter of my career. 
You make it sound so easy, but I think in the beginning, uh, starting out as an as an airman, in that time, it uh, wasn't easy at all. And also uh, doing this uh, university, so that's very usual for men in the military. But I think then um, it was quite unusual. So how did you to handle that? Well, that's an excellent question. What I always share are some lessons that I learned during this first part of my journey, and that was take advantage of opportunities. You know, try even if the odds are against you and don't fear the unknown. And what I mean by that is I was able to go to school at night using a program called tuition assistance. And I'm sure many of your listeners have the opportunity to look for college assistance, uh, scholarships, or apply for federal aid, or maybe their company pays for them to get an advanced degree. But to take that opportunity and actually do that and give up your weekends or evenings and study. So take advantage of opportunities. Sometimes opportunities look like work. And I'm grateful I did that because that allowed me to become, well, apply to be an officer. But the second thing, try anyways, even when the odds are against you. So when I applied to become an officer in the Air Force, the Air Force was really looking for STEM professionals, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. <laughs> and I'm none of those. Um, I actually have a business degree. My undergraduate is business and I have an MBA. So the first time I applied to become an officer, I was not selected and I was disappointed, but I reapplied, you know, updated my application, repositioned my skill set, updated my letters of approval. But I also started looking at what's going to be plan B if this doesn't happen. What's plan C? What's plan D? So that applies to men and women. You always need to know what's my first choice, but if that falls through, what's the backup plan? What do I want to do next? Fortunately, on the second time, the Air Force made, uh, selected me to become an officer. Now, the other part is, and I alluded to that a little earlier, the Air Force selected me to become a space acquisition officer, and I didn't know what it was, and I didn't want to do it, because I was a personnel specialist. All my friends were in personnel. It's what I knew. I wanted to continue doing personnel for the Air Force, but fortunately, the person at the Air Force Personnel Center said, this is what we really need you to do, not really making it an option. And that started my 25-year career in the space industry. So what I also say is don't fear the unknown. You know, the world is changing. New opportunities and new doors are opening up. Don't be afraid to step through those and take on that new challenge. Look at all the amazing technology now, AI, robotics, virtual reality. The opportunities for people to lean into new careers has never been greater. So that kind of tells a little bit about the lessons I learned in the first part of my career. And I think those are good lessons for men and women. What is actually a space acquisition engineer doing? So a space program manager, as they call it, or a space acquisition, so that's like program management, project management, cost scheduling performance, uh, running programs, looking at putting uh, assets in space or rockets or ground stations, working with the contractors that are building that technology. And if you're, if anyone on the call is a program manager, you understand that it's all about cost schedule and performance. So in addition to being a program manager for the Air Force, I also have my project management professional from Project Management Institute. So that's the civilian equivalent of that. Okay. And how many women were doing that together with you when you started? Great question. I don't really know, um, but I will share that I never noticed it, but other people would notice there were times when I was the only woman in the room or the only woman at the table. Okay. 
So 550, 500, so probably more than five, five-ish to 50. I, I believe the Air Force will tell you now their statistics that they're probably at about 15% women in the in the Air Force, 15 okay. or 20%. So it was less. And then this was a more technical career field, uh, probably even less. But I met some amazing women and men during this. One of my best friends, Cheryl Burgess, she was an engineer and she went on to become a patent attorney with an engineering background. So I met her. So I did meet some amazing women, uh, women that were African-American as well. So there was diversity. But yeah. Yes, many of many of my fellow military officers were were white males. But again, we have to think of the space industry. When we think back to the space industry 60 years ago, it primarily was government workers from two countries, STEM professionals, primarily white males, right? So look at how far the spectrum has come to today, right? Today, we look at the space industry and it's 90 countries are operating in space, we need all career fields, diversity of ages as well as genders, and so the opportunity has never been better. And I'm just grateful during my journey, I was part of helping to create a pathway for others to come into the space industry. Well, now you're Chief Operating Officer and the Space Foundation, that's something, uh, something different. And uh, yeah, what is the opportunity? And you're, you're promoting actually uh, space. So uh, pro for a moment, promote the, uh, the foundation and tell us what it is and what you do and uh, what women do there. Fantastic. Well, the Space Foundation is a U.S. nonprofit, and we do business internationally through our three main divisions. So our first division is our Symposium 365, and that is our world-class events. And we'll be executing one of those world-class events in the next week called our Annual Space Symposium, where we have 13,000 people from around the world in military, civil, commercial, and international space join us here in Colorado Springs to talk about the future of the space industry. We'll have more than 40 international delegations leading that, 15 heads of space agencies, and we'll have media from every continent on the planet except Antarctica. So that is a global premier space event. The second division is our Center for Innovation and Education, and that is all about our passion and our mission of why we're a nonprofit. That Center of Innovation Education is about creating that workforce pipeline, not only for today, but through the future. And we do that with three departments. We have a discovery center located here in Colorado Springs that's open to the public to build the space awareness of how space is available to everyone today. We also do kindergarten through 12th grade formal education through our Leadership Academy and teacher professional development. And then we do adult non-accredited education, especially for entrepreneurship um, and, high, and college students, you know, college careers, uh, highlighting what the opportunities are in the space industry. And then that third division is called Global Alliance. And that's all about being the beacon to the world for space. How can we partner to create the next thought leadership for the space industry? So the Space Foundation was a perfect fit for me after working in or working, being in the military for 30 years. You know, I'm very much about giving back and being a servant leader and going to work for Space Foundation as a nonprofit was another form for me to continue to serve and give back, not just to my nation, the U.S., but also to give back to the space community around the world. So that's a little bit about Space Foundation and what we do. Yeah, and uh, I understand uh, you have a very diverse uh, organization already, and the issue of women in space is not an issue for you. 
Well, that is a true statement that at Space Foundation, currently uh, our top three, myself, the chief operating officer, the chief financial officer, and the CEO. Uh, right now we have a man that's the CEO, but he is retiring in the next uh 60 days, and then we'll be hiring a female CEO who's a retiring major general from the Air Force. Our CFO is also a woman, as well as myself. So in 90 days, the Space Foundation top three will be all women. But the bigger thing I highlight is more than 50% of our workforce at Space Foundation is women. And we also have a diversity of skill sets. So I am a space professional. I came out of the space industry. But I'll also highlight that I have teachers. You know, we have teachers that have taught in the classroom at various grade levels. And they may not be space experts, but they're part of the space industry now because they work at Space Foundation or our social media person, or we have a digital engagement team that does our videos and recordings. Um, they're, they were not in the space industry. So what I'm sharing with your audience is sometimes people think space is just about launch vehicles, rockets, and astronauts, <laughs> and it certainly is. But it's also about 50 different careers that range from high school graduates to PhDs and everything in between. And so there's now opportunities for everyone to look at being part of the space industry. Yeah, and well, what is the interesting thing for women? Uh, a lot of uh, women, uh, when I was young, uh, wouldn't even consider to go uh, into space. You didn't, when, uh, because um, it was seen uh, so masculine, so tech, so technology. Uh, what is uh, why should women be more active in space? Well, I think the paradigm has shifted a lot. You know, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, so that kind of dates it, you know, women were not going to the military academies. They were not becoming fighter pilots and many of the careers that would lead to a space career, right? An astronaut. And so that was not even a perception of something I could do back in, when I was growing up. That perception has totally changed. And what's changed about it is we are now seeing in 2021, civilians, private citizens making it to space via commercial efforts, Blue Origin, you know, SpaceX, you know, SpaceX is launching in another week their Starship. And that'll be the first one that goes to the moon without anyone on it. But then they look to launch a future Starship with a Japanese uh, fashion mogul who's going to take eight people with him. And so the, op the paradigm of what is an astronaut, well, it used to be somebody who was in the Air Force or worked at NASA for the government, to now anyone on planet Earth could potentially become an astronaut. You could be a philanthropic person. You could be a millionaire. You could be a teacher that gets selected, uh, like my good friend, Dr. Cyan Proctor, who went with SpaceX many years ago. So the perception of what an astronaut means has changed, but the perception of space has changed because we still think of space as the moon or Mars, but we've shared in earlier discussions that space is also right here on Earth, that We're using space technology right now to talk. Telecommunications is one of the outputs of the space industry. And so there's an opportunity for individuals right here on planet Earth to look at space technology, commercialize it, and better life here on Earth. And there's a great place that all your audience can go look. One is the NASA Tech Transfer Office has thousands of patents that are waiting to be commercialized. Another one 
is the European Space Agency also has patents that are waiting to be commercialized. So for your audience, yes, we certainly still need astronauts and rocket scientists and people who want to go to space and look at the next evolution of becoming an interplanetary species. But we also need individuals here on planet Earth who want to harness space technology to help create the world and better humanity right here on Earth. Well, uh to, uh, to, uh, to develop colonies uh, on, in space at some time uh, is, uh, is a very likely perspective by now. It, it, it still sounds like science fiction, but uh, there are very concrete uh, projects out already. And uh, I think Elon Musk is dreaming of establishing the first colony on Mars uh, quite soon in only a few dec uh, decades. And on the other hand, Uh, also, uh, space mining is another issue that's probably a little bit further away than, than uh, a space colony. But also, these are issues when, when you see the demand, the growing demand for uh, raw materials uh, here on Earth. Uh, it, it's probably a, a pressing, a, a more and more pressing uh, problem here on Earth that space at some time we'll be able to provide a solution for. Uh, so what is your perspective on uh, what is the timeline you are seeing in this for these issues? So I think we can look at a diversity of timelines. The most near term is what they're calling cislunar orbit. And cislunar is the space between Earth and the moon. And we're looking at a commercial economy being established in cislunar orbit. You're looking at multiple countries participating in the Artemis Accords and Artemis is the return to the moon and then the opportunity to go on to Mars. And I will highlight Artemis is the twin sister of Apollo. So we had the Apollo era 60 years ago. Now we have Artemis. And that goal is to put the first woman and person of color on the moon. But this time we go to stay. We'll have a, uh, a space station, we'll call it, in the moon orbit called um, Gateway that will allow astronauts to traverse between the moon and gateway and Earth. And then this will be a great proving ground to then go on to Mars. So this is this is very near term. As you said, I think Elon Musk is really looking at within the next decade, he would like to have a Mars colony. I know the UAE would like a research facility on Mars in less than the next 100 years. So you're kind of looking at cislunar orbit, the commercialization of low Earth orbit, um, and that continued moving on to Mars. The technology for mining asteroids is definitely um, being re reviewed. There are companies that are looking at it. As you said, there are asteroids with, well, one important ingredient is water because water can then create um, hydrogen and oxygen. So um, that creates the ability to live off planet as well as water can create um, energy with hydrogen. So we want to look at making the technology and the materials off planet that we need. We don't want to take any more from Earth than we need to because we need to, like you said, leave the resources here on Earth. So the goal is one, we can look at resourcing, getting our resources off planet from asteroids, the moon or Mars to create those colonies. There's no way we can launch all of that into orbit. Um, now, as for bringing resources back, the technology of how we'll land on an asteroid and take off. We have seen some missions where different government agencies have started to create that technology where we can land on an asteroid, take a soil sample, lift off. That's all part of that technology of eventually getting to an asteroid and how would we 
vector it into the moon orbit or the Earth's orbit or Mars orbit to then harvest it. Um, but we've talked about in the past, I, I think mining uh, the technology, we're getting there, but it's further out than looking at that cislunar orbit of the moon. And then the other side is how do we take those resources? We can certainly use them off planet, but currently there is some technology that needs to be created and developed to bring those resources onto Earth. Right now, uh, that heavy downloading of resources is is not feasible at the moment. Well, what we see is a huge commercialization of the space industry. Before it was all government. Now there's a lot of uh, private initiatives. But also, I think uh, uh, Virgin now is, uh, is stepping oops, is stepping out of the space industry again. So um, is this. Um, uh, is this bad for the industry or is it just a, a short episode that is not uh, going to harm anything? I did write an article for, about Forbes um, a couple weeks or uh, a couple months ago about what does 2023 look like for the space industry. And we are seeing, you know, a potential for a recession. And so a recession normally has some winners and losers. Uh, you know, some companies will go out of business. Some companies will become stronger. We'll also see some, uh, we're going to see the investment may, maybe tightening up. You know, there was an era three, four years ago where if you were a unicorn and fastly spending money, that was touted as success. And now we're seeing what they call the camel, uh, you know, in um, startups where we want to see companies and entrepreneurs using resources wisely. And uh, how well do they, you know, ration their resources of funding? So there's a very different mindset for how investors are now investing in technology. So a recession normally causes some winners and losers and shakeout and consolidation. I don't think this in any way is going to impact the space industry. There's a number of uh, players, as we've discussed. And last year, the space industry was $469 billion dollars. And it's projected to be one trillion by 2030, and over three trillion by 2040, and 77 percent of the current space economy is commercial. So yes, we do have NASA and ESA and other government agencies that are investing in space, but you're still seeing the bulk of that coming in from satellites and telecommunication and other forms of technology that are picking that up. And as you continue to see the benefits and the investments pay off, you'll see space investment continue to thrive. And why is it so important to have a diverse um, human resource? Well, one good reason to do that is the marketplace and, and ideas. So when we think back to that original space you know, era 60 years ago, two countries in a space race uh, to put a man on the moon and safely return him to Earth. And that was kind of the end. What has happened over the last 60 years from that space race is all the technology transfer. You know, like we said, we're talking using telecommunications and our phones are using NASA imaging technology. And there are healthcare breakthroughs thanks to all that research from NASA that relates to mammogram detection or cataract surgery, laser angioplasty. So what the community has learned is investing in space has a big return right here on Earth in solving our greatest challenges, in solving healthcare, creating new forms of applications for uh, technology. I mean, when we think about space and cyber, 
Without space technology and cybersecurity, you don't have Airbnb. You don't have Uber. You know, all these applications on your phone do not exist. So having the infrastructure of space and cyber has created a whole new marketplace. And those entrepreneurs don't realize they're using space technology. You know, it's just like when Amazon started and you mailed books through the mail. The post office already existed. It didn't have to be created. What we're having to create now is some of that infrastructure to go into space. And that's what you're seeing Jeff Bezos and um, Elon Musk doing with their launch vehicles is creating some of the infrastructure to create that cislunar economy and eventually that Mars colony. Okay. Well, usually when um, infrastructure is being developed, then it is uh, the humanity is well advised to have some regulatory schemes around there. Um, do we have that right now in charge in a, in a, in a decent way? Great question. So there's a couple of different ways to look at it. There are some global treaties through the United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs. The likelihood we'll have more treaties and rules of the road, unlikely in today's world economy or in politics. But we do have the U.S. trying to lead with the Artemis Accords, which is a way for countries to sign on to say, this is how we will operate in space. These are the guidelines we'll try to follow and be good citizens in space. You know, one of the areas we see is there's a lot of orbital debris. And how do we want to clean up after ourselves in that low Earth orbit? So that's one area. We are looking at countries are creating the structure for a space economy. The U.S. is working on that. Right now, our space is uh, divided between several agencies, the Department of Commerce, as well as the Department of Transportation, and so on. Some countries um, are very pro-space. Uh, you can see Luxembourg is very pro-space with creating opportunities for the space industry, educational programs for the space industry. So there is a competition even among countries to draw those space entrepreneurs to their countries and incorporate there because they're creating the legislation that allows for the space ecosystem to thrive. Well, and I would assume that the question or the topic of sustainability is going to be a high one or a high-focused one for people in outer space because you need the energy, so you need to have a safe assumption of energy. Um, are you guys thinking in outer space of ESG terms, something like that? So if you go to the United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs, you can drop down and there is a drop down menu that talks about the sustainable development goals. So the sustainable development goals were agreed to by countries at the UN in 2015 to reach these goals by 2030. I'm sure your many of your audience know we're behind in those. But space is part of each and every one of those sustainable development goals. Um, we talked a little earlier about food. You know, we think about how does space help us with food growth? Well, we can think back 60 years ago to um, freeze-dried food technology came about from the space industry or formulated food. And today we're looking at food. Um, we can use earth observation satellites to monitor crops to determine if they're healthy. Do they have pests? Do they need fertilizer? Could they fail, you know, with drought conditions and changing climate? We have a better opportunity to look at crop monitoring. We can also look at, we're looking at vertical farming now. NASA is looking at vertical farming without soil, artificial intelligence. We're using artificial intelligence and robotics uh, to grow food off planet, but we can actually 
create vertical farming close to population centers and have food closer to the population source, reduce the carbon footprint of moving food around the planet, reduce the current way we do uh, growing food is not sustainable, you know, clear, clearing land and then growing food. And so space is looking at a number of ways of growing food for space, but also that's going to benefit us here. We can also look at weather, you know, being able to monitor the climate. How is the weather patterns changing? Are we going to have flooding or droughts? We can also look at um, living off planet for 20 years. You know, the International Space Station has now been in orbit for over 20 years. That means every drop of water is recycled, right? And so that technology to filter that water and then test it to make it sure it's safe for consumption has been commercialized here on Earth. So you can see hikers who will buy a water bottle at a camping store and now be able to go hiking and just, you know, pull water from a puddle or a stream, filter it, and then drink it and not have to carry water. We've also seen it where there could be hurricanes or monsoons that could flood areas, and you can then use that NASA technology uh, to test the wells to make sure they haven't been contaminated. So again, it's, it's no longer NASA technology because it's been commercialized by companies. So that's just a few. We also look at gender equality and quality education. You know, that's one of the things we at Space Foundation are very passionate about, creating that quality education, because when we create quality education, that also creates gender equality um, around the world and creates access and economic improvement, innovation. So all of these sustainable development goals are themed with space intertwined with them. Well, I only hope that in the long term, we are not just exporting our problems and destroy moon uh, and, uh, and uh, conserving our own planet and having a, a park and a paradise here. But all around us, we have the, uh, uh, we have the problems exported. I hope the, that's not what's happening, but uh, there's plenty of times to get ready for that, I think. Absolutely. I mean, there are two schools of thought that say, you know, we should explore and not contaminate other planets um, like Mars, or we should, and then others will say, well, it's okay, there's a lot of space there. So I will just highlight, um, we as a species are not good at taking care of our environment. We see that here on planet Earth. We're seeing it in low Earth orbit with all the orbital debris that we're trying to figure out how do we clean that up. So we as a species have not done a good job both on Earth and in low Earth orbit. Hopefully we will learn how to be better stewards of other celestial bodies. And what, what's going on in the near future, actually? I mean, now we learned um, it's an economic thing. It's a gender thing. So you're gaining by diversity, which I think personally is great that the life should be like that. Um, what are the obstacles you are, you're faced to? What are the challenges? I think there's a number of obstacles, and I'm going to first start with a workforce shortage, a skills deficit, and an innovation gap. So three main challenges. And what I mean by workforce shortage here in the U.S., and you're, you're in Europe, as we've discussed, as well as Japan, we're facing an aging population. We're seeing a uh, coming where we're going to have a retirement in our workforce, And so where are those future workers? How are we bringing them in? How are we encouraging them to come into the space industry? So workforce. The skills deficit is 
the space industry is still open for business. And even during COVID, the space industry was continuing to grow, even though people were losing their jobs. So, but they may not have the same skills. So we need to look at reskilling and upskilling the workforce. And that's going to apply everywhere as technology continues to advance. Um, the latest thing we're all talking about is AI, chat GBT. I'm not sure chat GBT will replace people's jobs. But for the person who doesn't know how to use AI and ChatGBT, it might replace your job or you. So it's really how do you incorporate those tools and continue to upskill and reskill. And then that third one is that innovation gap. You know, we talked about NASA tech transfer and how we're living on Apollo era technology today. You know, one of my favorite forms of Apollo era technology is fire retardant clothing because my husband was a firefighter for 30 years. And because of fire retardant clothing, from the Apollo era, he got to come home every night to me. But what what are we investing in today for space technology that's going to generate the next 60 years of innovation that's going to benefit us here on planet Earth? And that's how investment works in the space industry. You don't necessarily know when you launched Hubble that that technology of looking into space for anomalies would then be commercialized by a company to take that technology and look for anomalies in the human body and create mammogram detection and save millions of lives. So sometimes we have to, as governments and investors, be open to investing in the technology, knowing that it might be risky, but we're investing for the next generation to benefit from that technology over the next 60 years. So those are the three challenges, that workforce shortage, that skills deficit, and the innovation gap is what I'm concerned about. Okay. But, well, as you mentioned, 60 years ago, the government was the big uh, investment driver for some reasons. Today, we have a diversified industry. And I'm asking just myself, coming out of the financial industry, uh, do we have a good set of, um, of investment programs in this industry? Are the right people investing in the right projects? Well, I'm going to say right is a hard word to define because there are a number of investors in space technology. Uh, some are called space angels. So there's a number of organizations or investors that only invest in space. But then we have to look at, again, that adjacent industry of who is investing in technology that is benefiting from the space technology or the infrastructure. So I do think we have investors that are very big into the space technology. We see a lot of that going into the launch vehicles like SpaceX or Blue Origin. But we also need to look at investors who are going to invest in some of those other applications like healthcare. Um, one company has invested in osteoporosis treatment. So when women go into space, what they've discovered is women develop osteoporosis at an alarmingly faster rate than they do here on Earth. And so one company invested in that technology to solve or help solve osteoporosis here on Earth. So what we're learning is the human body in space suffers a lot of abnormalities because we're not designed to live in microgravity environment. And so healthcare companies can now in invest in those solutions to those challenges here on Earth. So there are some organizations like healthcare, fintech. I mean, how are we going to pay people in space who live off planet? Uh, we're probably going to use some form of cryptocurrency or NFT, I'll call it. Uh, so you're in the finance industry. So right now the entire financial system 
is running on space technology. Uh, every time somebody goes to an ATM, there's a date timestamp on that ATM that comes off a GPS satellite. That's the first form of blockchain was GPS satellites. So the entire financial system's already running on space technology. Um, but agriculture, so I talked about vertical farming, but let's think about precision agriculture. So all these John Deere tractors out in the world are using GPS to plant the crops, you know, driverless tractors that are planting and harvesting, and that can increase crop yields by 10%. We're using GPS to move that produce around the planet, you know, with logistics. So we're already embraced in technology. So the question is, who are the investors in those 12 different economic sectors, right? We've got the space sector, but what about the other economic sectors of healthcare and agriculture and energy and manufacturing and so on? Who wants to invest in those and bring in space technology as part of the solution versus looking at it, it's just a space technology investment. It's, it's dual-hatted nowadays. But still, but still risky if, you know, we'll go back to space mining, higher risk, higher reward uh, in that type of technology breakthrough. But when that does happen, think about the paradigm shift that we'll have when you land an asteroid that's full of rare earth minerals, right? Because everything on earth is from the universe. We're all made up of the universe. So when we find those asteroids made up of what we need here on planet Earth, how will that not only benefit us, but think about what that could also do to the precious metal stock exchange, right? That will totally plunge things. So there's pluses and minuses as we look at space mining and the economic impact of uh, bringing in rare earth minerals and being able to bring them here to Earth. Yeah, true, true. Well, it will still be... A function of supply and demand in the end of the day. If it, comes from, if it comes from the orbit or from wherever, as soon as you have it here down on Earth, uh, it will be under the regime of supply and demand. Interesting is what's going to be up in the on Mars, because there you will have at least for a, a decade or two a transition period, because you have to bring stuff over there. Absolutely. I think what we're looking at for the near future is what I'll say is a public-private partnership. You are still going to look at the government investing in a number of these things because the risk to private enterprise is too high, you know, and that's the role of the government. The role of the government is to invest in technology that's still nascent and high risk. And then as the risk grows less to transition it to a commercial market. So as we look to uh, right now, you're looking at NASA, you know, the International Space Station will stay in orbit until 2030. But NASA is now partnering and it has let contracts with four commercial space uh, companies, commercial space station companies to look at eventually transitioning off. So it's a there's going to be more public-private partnership as the government looks to commercialize parts of space that become less uh, challenging. And then the government's role will probably be to more pivot to um, Mars or exploring the rest of the universe and activities like that. Again, investing in areas that currently don't have profitability for a private enterprise to invest in. Elon Musk is a different uh, anomaly because he's not investing to go to Mars for the pure profit motive, 
this is a quest for him. It's a passion. It, it's a different driving motive for him. And you have other investors that could be investing in space for the same reasons. Well, we, we should we should agree on a time for another episode about Elon Musk's motivations. That's probably well, very. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure I'm the best person to talk about Elon Musk's motivations, but you know, I'm sure he would uh, he would love to hear from you and uh, join you for uh, his motivations. Uh, uh, he he's quite a good speaker. I I've seen him speak a couple times at events, but also I've uh, he speaks at conferences around the world, and he'll share some of those motivations as well as Jeff Bezos. You know, Jeff Bezos has a different motive for investing in space. He believes yeah. we should take manufacturing off planet Earth to save the planet from the harmful effects of manufacturing. Uh, so his motives are very different. He's more uh, moon focused, uh, hence Blue Origin, you know, the moon. And, uh, and Elon Musk is more Mars. So again, some investors uh, will have passions that they're investing in things, even if they may not be the true investment model of what's mm -hmm. the benefit or ROI. And some investors are going to totally look at that ROI. When am I going to get my benefit back in three, five, seven, 10 years? Um, and Dieter, as you know, most investors don't want to go beyond five, but Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and others are really looking at that longer term, uh, helping to pull humanity forward with technology. Well, actually, I have a very simple question. What's the future of humanity if we don't develop or um, explore space? Very good question. Excellent question. I think that's a whole panel discussion with some excellent experts, but I do believe that based on what we've seen over the last 60 years with the investments in human in technology, as well as diversity in the space industry, if we don't continue to pursue that, we will miss out on a lot of technology innovation that will solve our greatest challenges here on Earth. The other thing I will say is, As human beings, we have the desire to explore. We're explorers at heart. Now, whether we explore in our physical bodies and go off world or we send robots and artificial intelligence like we already have. I mean, we have sent uh, the U.S. and Europe and Japan. You know, we've partnered together and sent uh, rovers to Mars already. We've sent... Um, satellites and you know voyager let's think back you know many decades to voyager when we sent that out to explore the universe so we as human beings have a desire to explore and understand and learn more about our environment and why we are here and that desire will not change what may change is what our motives are or where we where we want to be an interplanetary species too and so i think those are good debates that we can continue to have the com conversation about that's what makes it fun Well, if I, what I learned is there is space in space and we benefit on Earth from it. <laughs> and uh, also on Earth, uh, if we set up in uh, this diplomatic world a head office in the Antarctica, we also can send people to conferences from the Antarctica. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so I think it was really an excellent uh, episode. It will be an excellent uh, episode with some excellent input. And it was absolutely fun talking to you. And thank you for all your time and your insight. Shelley, it was really fun and um, really interesting talking to you. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much. It's a pleasure joining you. And until next time, I look forward to seeing you around the galaxy. Two, the Power of More from Brockmeier and Zalo. Innovation Thinking.